Well, as Mike uh, mentioned a little earlier, the year's closing on us fast. Tomorrow night, the new year will arrive, and probably many of you have been considering resolutions for this new year. Things like losing weight, um, eating better, exercising, spending more time in the Bible, spending more time with your family and friends. But I'd like to suggest another possible resolution for the coming year. This verse out of Jude 3 might be a very good place that we could look for something that we would resolve to do in 2013. This verse is the third verse. There aren't chapters in Jude, but it's beloved. While I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once delivered for, for all, to the saints. I'm sorry, which was once for all delivered to the saints. That's the New King James Version I chose because of the way it ends, delivered to the saints. Um, Jude's a very short book in the Bible. We don't really seem to spend a lot of time there, but it's a book that has an awful lot of relevance to us today, particularly this verse. But let's open in prayer to try to prepare us for what we're about to get into by studying in depth this verse. Lord, we just pray that you would impress upon us the importance of contending for the faith. Just show us how important it is in this world we live in today where Faith in your word, faith in you, is being challenged from many different directions. And we just pray, Lord, that you would give us the resolve to contend for the faith in the coming year. Show us, Lord, how we can do this through this study we're going to be looking at today. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, today what we're really going to do is we are just going to take this verse and look at it in a lot of detail, and then we're going to look and see how relevant it is to our lives today. We're going to look at really what it means to exhort, what it means to contend earnestly, and we're going to look at what is this faith that was just so important to Jude, and see really what it is, get to the basics of that. And then what does it mean that it has been once delivered to the saints? First, a little bit of background on Jude. I mentioned it's uh, a very short book. It's the next to the last book of the Bible. It's only 25 verses. It's right before Revelation. Um, A lot of you may have read it, but not a lot of study because it's just one of those books that it's not like we're going to have a Bible study on the book of Jude. We don't often do that, but it is so important in terms of the message that he is presenting here. But let's start by giving a little bit of background about who is Jude. Well, just a few points I think are important uh, taken from Jude, from the first verse, from Matthew 13 and from Mark 3, just to give us an idea. Some of you may not really know who he was. Well, he identified himself as the brother of James. And you might wonder, there's always a lot of people with the same names, it seems like, in the Bible. James is one of those. And a term that some 
writers have used. They have referred to him as James the Just. Now, this is not James, the brother of John, one of the two sons of Zebedee, who, we, who became apostles of Jesus, who followed after him, one of the twelve. It's not that James. It is a different James. But he was the James who we read became the first head of the church in Jerusalem. Now, Jesus had four half-brothers, and Jude is one of those half-brothers. And we get that from, um, from these other passages that we were looking at. Those other brothers of Jesus were actually identified as Joseph, Simon, James, and Judas. Now, Judas is, James, is Jude. That is, uh, Judas is the Hebrew, and Jude is the Greek of that. So that is the same person as one of those half-brothers of Jesus. Now, those brothers, these four brothers, initially thought, and that would include Jude too, that Jesus was out of his mind. And that was the term that was used when Jesus' teaching was actually getting him in trouble. He was endangering his own life. And so um, his brothers wanted to take control of him and protect him from the Pharisees or the scribes or the teachers of the law who he had uh, irritated and made mad and was uh, wanting to kill him. So they were trying to protect him. But later, this same brother and others identify themselves, as Jude did, as a servant. So Jude went from not understanding who his half-brother was to then later calling himself a servant. The beginning of this book, too, Jude said that he wanted to write about the common salvation, but he changed gears, and he wrote on a different topic. He wrote on a different topic, which is really this idea of contending for the faith because of what was happening in the church in his time, where heresy had crept into the church. And the kind of heresy that he was mainly talking about was this Gnostic teaching. And you've heard that, uh, I think Mike at times has mentioned what is Gnostic teaching. That had crept into the church at that time, and it was really just denying the incarnation and the divinity of Jesus. It was a teaching that there was some kind of secret knowledge that was hidden to most believers and it really even just disregarded the call to uh, Christian ethics and values and behaviors. So there was a lot of things about Gnosticism that needed to be uh, taught against and defended against. And that's this contending for the true faith that he was trying to uh, just encourage the people of his time. So that's what Jude really wrote on instead of what he initially intended to write on. Now, he said it was necessary to exhort. And I think it's important for us to know what exhort means and to see what exhort in action looks like. Well, exhortation, according to Webster's, means passionate communication intending to persuade, inspire, or encourage. So you all kind of know what exhorting is, but let's look at a couple examples of what exhorting looks like in our world. Well, sergeants exhort soldiers in a boot camp. They want to teach them, train them to be good soldiers, to protect their own lives at some point in the future, to learn certain things. 
they exhort, they passionately communicate and try to teach and persuade. Coaches exhort. They try to get their players to execute the things that they have been training for day after day in practices. That's a form of exhortation. And then preachers exhort. Whether it's somebody teaching uh, God's word, trying to get it into you, trying to encourage you to obey God's word, and not just hear the words and not do anything in response. So that's examples of exhortation. And why do these people exhort? Well, they believe so strongly in what a certain message is that they want to send to the people who are listening. You can tell each of those people who are exhorting seem emotional. They seem like they believe strongly in what it is that they want to teach or get them to do what they've already been taught. They care about the audience. That's the key. The person who is exhorting cares about the listener. They care about their well-being. They care about where they're going to end up and whether they're going to have success. So exhortation makes no sense if somebody doesn't care. Okay, so he's exhorting them to contend for the faith. This concept of contending earnestly, this actually comes from a single word which I just, I have tried all week to figure out how to say this word. And I know that I would torture it. In the handout that you have today, it actually is the, the phonetics explanation, I mean, or how you would say this word, which I don't even think I'm going to try. Okay, I'm sorry, but I, I know I'll torture it, so I'm not even going to try. But you can see what the word is. It's only used one time in the whole New Testament. In this one place of Jude. But there is another word, a much more common word, that doesn't have the EP on the front of it. And it in, that adding the EP in what I studied said that it intensifies the original meaning of this word by adding EP. So it's even more intense than what it would mean. And so what does it mean? Let's look at this verse from 2 Timothy where Paul says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. That's what the less intense version of the word means. It is a word that means that you would fight and strive to the point of agony. Do you notice that the beginning of the more commonly used word looks like agony? That's where we get our word agony from this Greek word. So, it is fighting as a soldier. It's striving like a marathon runner in a last mile of a race. If you can try to think along those lines, you can get a feel for what Jude is encouraging us to do. To contend earnestly means to be willing to fight and strive to the point of agony. Not just lukewarm. That's the alternative. We may believe something strongly and have a lukewarm approach to our witness, to, to our contending for the faith. This call by Jude and this helpful understanding of what it means from Paul tells us what the expectation is for us in how to behave, what contend earnestly really means.
being willing to fight and strive to where agony comes into the picture. Now, we're supposed to contend earnestly for the faith. Jude doesn't give a whole lot of explanation of what he means by the faith. And I'm going to get to real basics here today. We could maybe look at this a little bit differently, but I think the faith that he wants us to contend for is this. The truth about Jesus Christ, the gospel, this old, old neon sign outside of an inner city rescue mission says it all. Jesus saves. That's really the message. That's the message that the angels gave the shepherds on Christmas morning when they said, today, in the city of David, a Savior is born. And they also said that that coming Savior would bring peace between mankind and God. That is the message about Jesus that we are to contend for. It's also the message, the very simple message, that John the Baptist gave when he said to his followers, when Jesus came on the scene, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I can't think of a whole lot more that John really taught us. He taught us to look to Jesus, to take away the sins, our sins, And we just need to trust in him for that to be able to be accomplished in our lives. That's the message. That's the faith that we are to contend for. It's all about Jesus. It's not about all the other details. If we miss this, we miss everything. So I believe that, again, coming back to the problem that Jude was facing, Gnosticism was denying the divinity of Christ, denying the incarnation of Christ as God in the flesh. That's the truth that we are to contend for, the faith we are to contend for. Now, why would we want to have to contend earnestly for this faith? What's so important about it? Well, we said that it can lead to forgiveness of sins, but let's look at what that means. Belief in Jesus as compared to unbelief, yields eternal life. Belief in Jesus also saves us from eternal destruction and eternity in hell separated from God in the lake of fire. It can't be more clear as stated in Acts 4.12. Salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. This, again, is the basics. This is what we're to contend for. It's all about Jesus. Yes, the Bible's filled with lots of other things that we should try to understand and obey. And a lot of things there are important. They're not unimportant. But the basic, most important truth that we are to contend for is the truth about Jesus. In addition to the personal salvation side of importance for contending for the faith, it's just that Jesus is worthy. He's the creator, sustainer, healer, redeemer, Messiah, Lord. All those things make him worthy of us contending 
for, his, for that faith that is about him, for that truth that is about him. There are other reasons that are related to this. They do link back to Jesus because we are his ambassadors. We are his agents here in this world. We're the ones who take his message forward into a dark world. We stand up for him. We're not ashamed to say we are his followers. That's what it means to be his ambassador. We speak for him. It's not because we believe something. It's because of what he was and what he stands for and what he told us. Another reason, Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.20 that he was to guard what had been entrusted to his care. That is that truth, again, that gospel message, the word of God. We are to guard it. It has been entrusted to our care. It has been entrusted to the church. We're part of that church. And now we are the ones who should guard that faith, that truth, and contend for it in a world that believes its foolishness. Another reason that God's word is more precious to us than silver or gold. If we believe that, if we really believe that it is that precious, then we are going to try to guard it. And finally, 1 Corinthians 10, whatever we do, we do it for the glory of God. Another reason to contend for the faith. Now, that verse, that first key verse we looked at from Jude said that that faith, that truth, was delivered to the saints. Once delivered. That's the key, once. That means what? And that truth, first of all, is revealed to us in God's word. All of the truth about Jesus, all of the truth about the Father is in God's word. We have the full whole counsel of God. We, everything we believe in about Jesus is there. We don't need anything else. By guarding it too, we are guarding it from editorial change. We're guarding it from deletion or addition. We, don't, we shouldn't be comfortable when people tamper with God's word. Yeah, there's a lot of translations, and a lot of them are very good, but that's different than tampering with it by changing certain things to make it more fitting with what we believe is politically correct in our world today. We should not be satisfied that, and that's part of contending for the faith, is standing up when somebody wants to tamper with his word. It was once delivered to the saints. It was preserved by God through time for us, so we can now guard it. It's complete, sufficient, finished, fixed, Nothing more is needed than what we have. Yes, people can teach on God's word. People can write good books on God's word. But they aren't adding to the truth that we already have. They're just helping us understand it and apply it better. Okay, so who and what are we contending with? We are saying there's an enemy out there that we need to stand up and defend and guard against. Well, we'll look at a few of those. First, false teachers. I think that's who Jude was mainly talking about, false teachers that had crept into the church. False teachers have been with us 
from the beginning. This isn't a new thing. We see it all over in Scripture, but we also know false teachers are here today. The false teachers are in the church. They're in the world around us. We probably hear more from the world around us in today's time of what false teachers are saying. What we really have going on as false teachers would really be defined as anybody who is saying something that conflicts with God's word in any way. I mean, it could be extreme, it could be very subtle, but we have to be aware and try to discern that. We have another thing to contend with. We have this movement, this force, to totally rid our society of anything Christian. And we would, you know, some people say, oh, we're a secular society. We shouldn't be having uh, Christianity portrayed in the public square in such a way that it appears the government is supporting it. And you've heard those arguments all the time, whether it's a cross in a cemetery that's a government cemetery or some kind of stone carving in a government building that may have something from the Ten Commandments to something else written. We hear that all the time. But we have this, these forces trying to cleanse our society of anything Christian. And what's the effect of that? What would be the effect of that cleansing? Well, for a generation that is undergoing the battle before the cleansing occurs, maybe not as much. But what's going to happen for the generation that comes next? when there's none of this around us anymore. It shows it's unimportant. So we need to try to contend those forces to totally rid our public square of anything related to our faith. We're also contending with the concept of evolutionary naturalism, and it's really naturalism is the point. Evolution is one of the concepts of naturalism, but what it really is is this idea that there is nothing real Everything is a myth unless it can be naturally described according to science rather than believing that there could be something supernatural. And what this really does is it gets at the very root of the criticism to the reliability and trustworthiness of Scripture because Scripture is filled with the supernatural. So naturalism tries to just put a big X across every verse of the Bible that is supernatural, sooner or later you don't have anything left by doing that. What is true then and what is truly left if we take everything supernatural out of Scripture? And then you got these two major concepts, and naturalism is part of the first one, this modern philosophy, but then you got something that I think is even more dangerous that has crept on the scene, postmodern philosophy, and we're going to talk about these. Postmodern, many of you may not know what that is. Most of you probably have an idea of what modernism means. It really was this age of enlightenment or reasoning, and here's a timeline up here. Some would say the concept of modern thought began in the Renaissance in the 1600s with some believers, really. They weren't turning us away from Christianity, but they were enhancing science. Galileo and Newton and people like that. But then in the 1800s, modern thought is really was like peaking, and it became a turning point. And where it really uh, started was with the geologist Lyell, this person in the early part of the 1800s who talked about long, long ages. So it brought into question the concept 
of how old is the earth and the credibility of Genesis and all of that kind of thing. And Darwin followed in the 1850s. But this was a real turning point, even within the church, how modern thought was now just really raising questions that made the credibility of Scripture uh, less accepted by many, or at least some aspects of Scripture. But then what happened at that same time period, modernism never disappeared. It's still here with us today, modern thought. But this postmodern idea came on the scene. It really came on the scene with some philosophers who I won't go there with who they are right today, but it really peaked in the educational establishments of the United States and the Western world in general in the 60s. The education, I'll say the elite of our education establishments, they kind of took a hold of this concept. And here's some of what it really means. We cannot really know truth. The idea of your truth is not my truth. And our perception of truth is really tainted by our biases that we start with, our presuppositions. Circumstances influence what is true. For example, uh, stealing, lying, are they always wrong? Well, not from a postmodern perspective. There may be a time when stealing is okay or lying is okay. I'm not sure scripture teaches that. We have teachers, though, in our schools, and including Care Paravel in the past, that allowed the students to spend a lot of time reading philosophers that taught postmodernism thought. Well, I'm not saying we shouldn't allow our students to be exposed to this, but if we are going to expose them to this, I would hope that the teachers would, in a Christian environment, maybe not going to get it in a secular environment, but in a Christian environment, that they would at least bring them around to what the truth is and not leave them hanging with some of these kind of ideas of we cannot really know truth. This idea in today's world, and I would say it's very common out there in the college environment, that uncertainty and doubt are honorable concepts. If you think you know for sure anything, that's not acceptable in some of those kinds of settings. That's an arrogant type of an idea that you know without a doubt that something is true. But if you want to be truly humble, you're going to be saying, I'm not sure about that, even if it's matters of eternal salvation and things like that. That's the postmodern idea. Now, this conflicts totally with the Bible, the postmodern concept. And I've got a few verses here. They're not actually word for word. I tried to fit them on the slide. But these give you the idea of why the postmodern concept conflicts with Christianity. I'll just go down the line. 2 Corinthians 2, 10. God has revealed truth to us by his spirit. So we can have real truth and know it. 1 Corinthians 2.12. We have received the spirit of God that we may understand his word. 1 John 2. We can know the truth and it will set us free. 2 Peter 1. God's word is an unfallible record of truth. And John 14.6, Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. These verses are in total conflict with the postmodern philosophy 
that fills our education establishments today. We can know truth. That is one of the great things of being a Christian. We've got his word that reveals it all to us, and we can trust it. Now, to say that the Bible tells us these things, we have to believe that we can trust the Bible. And today is not going to be the day to try to prove the, the, the fact that the Bible is divinely inspired and trustworthy. But I can tell you that a good, thorough study of this idea will prove to you that the Bible is divine in origin. That's something for another day to get into. But the Bible does tell us that we can know truth and we can stand firmly upon it. Okay, despite the fact that the Bible teaches this very clearly in these verses and other places as well, postmodern thinking has influenced the church. It's crept into the church. And I've got a couple examples of how that has happened. But first, why has it happened? I have this verse that we're all probably familiar with from 2 Timothy 4.3. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Well, I, I think it's gotten worse with me in, as I've gotten older into the 50s, but my ears really itch sometimes. I don't know about the rest of you. Do you ever have a feeling in your ear and you can't even get to it or itch it? I mean, it just itches. But sometimes you'll be dumb enough like me to stick a Q-tip in your ear and try to itch it or scratch it, I guess is the right word. The, the ear is itching, and that feels so good, you know, when you finally can do that. Is there anybody who's <laughs> done that? Or am I the only one who's, who's tried to itch that? And it really has felt good to do that. That's why he uses that analogy of itching ears wanting to hear it. Because if you've ever been there, you know how good it feels to scratch those itching ears. Well, you know, it's more than just scratching itching ears. He's using that as an example. We want to gather around us, even in the setting of the church, somebody who is going to tell us what we want to hear. Somebody who is going to say, this behavior that you are Carrying out is okay. The Bible really didn't teach that. We couldn't know that for sure. It was a little too vague for us to understand that, those verses. Or maybe that's a little too hard a teaching in the Bible. God couldn't have meant that. So let's look at a couple of these things. There was a book recently, very recent, Rob Bell, called Love Wins. Anybody ever been familiar with that one? It's a book that came out about a year ago. I'm not exactly sure when. But it pretty much says nobody goes to hell. Hell is a really hard message. And a lot of people have said, God could never, the God I believe in could never sentence people to an eternity in hell. That's not the God I would worship. I wouldn't want to worship a God that would do that. So that's what he teaches. You have another chance after you die to accept Christ and to be with God. Jesus. It's not before you die. It could be after you die. That's an easy message. It kind of scratches people's itches in their ear because they don't want to hear that awful message that maybe some family member who was not a Christian ended up in hell. They would love to believe his message that they had another chance after death 
That's an example of a postmodern idea creeping into the church. Another one, homosexuality. I think if you've ever been honestly studying scripture about whether God believes homosexuality is wrong, you would say yes. But there's a lot of people say, well, Jesus never specifically said anything against homosexuality, even though he indirectly taught about it. This has crept into our churches. Many churches have accepted homosexuality as acceptable. Interfaith events. Now, some may say, well, we should be friends with people of all faiths. Yes, we should interact with them, we should live with them, we should be good neighbors to them, all of that kind of thing. But should we have common worship services with them where we appear to be worshiping the same God, the same beliefs? I would say no. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 has a major section that talks about went from a spirituality perspective, a faith perspective, we have no place being united with other faiths. We should be good neighbors. We should love them but we shouldn't worship together. Now, there are other threats, and this interfaith one, I'm going to actually show something. I hope this doesn't offend anybody, but this is a real quote from our present leader of our country as an example of threats to our faith that need to be contended against. Our present leader said in an interview with a writer from Chicago, I believe there are many paths to the same place. All people of faith, Christians, Muslims, Jews, animists, know the same God. When you have leaders telling you things like this, some people are going to wonder about whether or not that's right or wrong. I already mentioned college classrooms where postmodern thought thrives, especially secular campuses. It can even be in high school environments. This is where the modern idea comes out, but it, it also can be if you're in a philosophy type class where you are going to get postmodern ideas, but both modernism and postmodernism is just attacking our kids in school. The nightly news, I picked one station, I could have picked any of them and put it up there for a picture, but they love to have stories that seem to attack the credibility of scripture whether it is a story about a new missing link to prove evolution instead of creation, or whether it is life on another planet, or whether it's Jesus has been married. That's the story that came out recently. The news just plays those kind of stories up because it challenges the credibility of Scripture. And then movies and TV. We could go on and on and on about how these... Uh, Things that are in our culture are also challenging the credibility of Scripture. So what are the effects of modern and postmodern philosophy on faith? Well, I've got a couple surveys that I'm going to show you some results from that give you an idea of where we're at right now. These are very recent surveys, one by Gallup, one by Barna. From this Gallup survey, thinking back about Scripture, the truth is in Scripture. The revealed truth about Jesus is in Scripture. One-third believe it is God's literal word. That's all people. This is everybody in our United States. 
One-third believe it contains errors, and one-third believe it is only fables and myths. So only one-third of the population is, at least in this survey, willing to say they believe the Bible accurately gives us God's word. The Barna survey is even maybe a little more disturbing because this survey relates to self-identified born-again Christians. And one-third of them say that the Koran, Book of Mormon, and other holy books teach the same basic truths as the Bible. There has had to be a major influence of modern thinking, postmodern thought, on people who probably attend church regularly to have this kind of result. So coming back to our goal, contending for the faith, we need to stand up and contend because these are the kinds of effects we're seeing in our culture. Now, is it okay to contend earnestly? Remember, I started out by saying if you contend earnestly, it means you're going to contend to the point of agony. You're going to strive. You're going to fight. You're going to stand up. You're not going to be ashamed of the gospel. Whenever given an opportunity, is it okay? Well, you're going to be not treated very well, and I've got a couple examples of things we're going to look at here as to what you might expect if you contend for the faith. You're probably going to be called some names if you do contend for the faith. And here's some of those kinds of names that you would probably find coming your way. You're going to be called intolerant. Things like, your truth is not my truth. You're going to be called a bigot. Somehow you're thinking you're superior to anyone who disagrees with you. So instead of you just telling the truth, you're somehow going to be portrayed as someone with a superiority complex of some sort. You're going to maybe be considered naive or stupid. Uh, How can you ever believe myths and fairy tales of that type? You're going to be called a right-wing fanatic. Um, You watch too much Fox News, for example, if you're going to claim these things. Somehow they're going to link right-wing with Christianity. That is being done in our society today. You're going to be a hater. You're going to be called the Christian Taliban. This is some of the kind of things that happen. And one of the ways that I know this is not only just listening and reading different things in the paper or comments to articles that are in the paper. I have a history of writing letters to the editor over a period of many years. It goes back, I don't know how many, but probably 15, 20 years writing letters to the editor of the paper. I even had a column in a Christian paper that existed a while back called the Kansas Christian. And most of my letters to the editor in some way contend for the faith. Sometimes it's pretty strong. Sometimes, I'm a science guy too. I think some of you know that. Sometimes I just stick to science and, and don't go all the way over into the, to link it to faith. But when I write a letter, I usually take some heat. My wife Robin can tell you this. Uh, Here's some examples. The last letter I wrote to the editor was after President Obama said that I will now support homosexual marriage. So I wrote a letter to the editor on this topic, which did link it to faith, the whole idea. And I'm going to 
these are real comments. But first I'm going to say these comments, there were 83 comments online to my letter to the editor. We got multiple phone calls as well. Now Bob Hannibal, wherever he is, he, he's got a letter in the paper this morning. Very good letter from a historical perspective about the importance of faith in our heritage. Good letter. Um, the phone calls are amazing. People will leave really rude phone call messages. They'll call and hang up. They'll call and yell and hang up. Things like that. They track you down, who you are. But here's some, these are real comments that were in the comments to my letter. Keep your blankety ideas to yourself. What rock did you just crawl out from under? Shame on you for your hatred and bigotry. Your God is a figment of your imagination. You are a sick and pathetic man. Jesus said you shall not judge. Bible Billy, that's me, I guess. You are just wrong, wrong, wrong. And they could, I could go on and on and on, but that's the kind of thing you can expect if you contend for the faith today. It really angers people. Well, how and where can we contend for the faith in Topeka? There are a lot of places. You're always not going to get that kind of response. There are ways you can contend for the faith without quoting scripture. You can just be a good witness for Christ. And let's look at a few of those places and, and ways we can contend. Sometimes you're going to get the kind of response that I just showed you that I got. Other times you won't, and you don't have to. So here's some ideas. Again, letters to the editor. Local government meetings. You know, our government is making decisions all the time, and we can attend those meetings, and we can provide comments that are very much related to biblical principles without just quoting our Bible to them in the meeting. We can say things in a way that is so in line with Scripture. And so local government meetings is one. School board meetings, another, the same kind of thing. There may be a time and a place to say, I've got to talk about Jesus. I've got to talk about the Bible specifically. But there are times when we can just take what we know about Scripture and apply it in ways that don't appear like you're going to get an immediate slam just because you're quoting the Bible. In the home, you think that we need to contend even in the home? Well, we sure do need to contend for the faith in our home. There's not any, you know, some homes, and by home I'm going to expand that. I'm going to expand it to family, not just your immediate home, but we all probably just spent time with a bigger part of our family than our immediate family for Christmas. We may for New Year's too. But contending for the faith is important in our own home. Again, are you going to, if you've got non-believers in the home, let's say you're getting together with some in-laws for a holiday, are you going to drive it down their throat with Scripture? Or are you going to try to be more sensitive and figure out the best way to defend and contend for the faith with them? But contending for the faith in the home can be something as simple as ensuring that not, not God-honoring God honoring things are brought into the home, whether it's movies, books, games, whatever. There's a lot of things that contending for the faith in the home we may be forgetting. Neighborhoods, same thing. Same kind of ways of contending and at work. 
All of these places are places that we might consider contending for the faith in the coming year. And here's sort of some summation statements. When we contend for the faith, we can do it out of our own anger. We may be angry that the world hates God. And so that makes us not contend for the faith in a loving way. We've got to do it. Our motivation has got to be based upon love for God and love for others. That's why we're doing this. Remember, we're trying to get them to believe, people to believe, so that they don't end up with that eternal separation from God in hell. We should go into contending with a spirit of thanks. We should be thankful, first of all, that he opened our eyes to truth. It's because of what he has done for us, he began the good work in us, that we truly can believe and not see this as foolishness. So we enter into this with love and thanks. We also enter into contending with the full armor of God. Is it a spiritual battle that we would be facing? That armor of God in Ephesians 6, we need to put on every morning. And when we do so, we should stand firm. And this verse out of Philippians talks about the church standing firm in one spirit for the faith. That's working together with other believers standing firm. It's hard on your own. You can go out on your own, but standing firm as a church body is key to have that support of one another. We should expect persecution. We can do it all right. We can do it even in a spirit of love and thanks, but we should still expect persecution if we're going to be telling the truth. Jesus was persecuted. He said we should expect to be persecuted. And we should then know that if we're going to experience agony, contending earnestly means agony, we should be prepared to persevere. And finally, we should remember that Jesus said we are salt and light. And salt and light means some important things when we go out contending. Salt is used to preserve what is good and true, and to add flavor, to make Christianity appealing. And it doesn't mean to be easy believism, but to make it appealing means to show others the joy you have in this abundant living and following Christ. They should see something in your life that just looks good. It's not easy believism, but they should see something they want for themselves that they see in you. And the light. We should let our good deeds shine before men in order to glorify the Father. So, what I'd like to end with today is to just kind of go over the words of this praise song that we're going to sing as the first song. I hope some of you know it. It's a song that I really like, and it's a song that really relates uh, to the way our attitude should be if we're going to go forward contending for the faith. It's the way we see the Lord. It's the way we see what he has done for us. And it just is that attitude that we need to have as we go forward to contend for the faith in the coming year. My Jesus, my Savior, Lord, there is none like you. All of my days I want to praise the wonders of your mighty love. My comfort, my shelter, 
tower of refuge and strength, let every breath, all that I am, never cease to worship you. Shout to the Lord, all the earth, let us sing. Power and majesty, praise to the king. Mountains bow down and the seas will roar at the sound of your name. I sing for joy at the work of your hands. Forever I'll love you, forever I'll stand. Nothing compares to the promise I have in you. If we go into 2013 willing to contend for the faith, thinking in the way that the words of this song say these things, we're going to go in with the right attitude. We're going to go in with an attitude of love and joy and thankfulness. And we're going to be able to do what God intends for us in 2013. So let's pray. Lord, I do pray that uh, every one of us will look for opportunities in this coming year to contend for this faith, to stand firm just and believe what it is that you have told us in your word, to be willing to speak truth where it's needed, to not be ashamed of the gospel, to not be afraid to mention the name of Jesus, that name that's above all other names. Help us to be willing to say it, to not shy away from it, to not just say God, but to mention Jesus, because it's all about you, Jesus. We thank you for this church. We thank you for a church that preaches the gospel unashamedly. And we thank you, Lord, for this fellowship of believers who will stand firm together and encourage and help each other as we contend as a church body. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.